If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm here to calm your mind and help you relax into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Chapter 12 of Emily of New Moon by L. M. Montgomery. In the last chapter, Emily unexpectedly made friends with Isla during a thunderstorm. In tonight's story, Isla and Emily both make a new friend up on the hill. First, let's make sure we're as comfortable as we can be and ready to fall asleep. Remember, getting a good night's sleep is very important for our health. So if you're struggling to sleep tonight because of worries or anxieties, you owe it to yourself to put them aside this evening and concentrate on nothing more than making sure you're well rested. We all fall asleep in our own time and in our own way. So on your journey to sleep tonight, all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. And so, let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 12 The Tansy Patch Emily and Isla had a splendid fortnight of fun before their first fight. It was really quite a terrible fight, arising out of a simple argument as to whether they would or would not have a parlour in the playhouse they were building in Lofty John's Bush. Emily wanted a parlour, and Isla didn't. Isla lost her temper at once and went into a truly burnly tantrum. She was very fluent in her rages, and the volley of abusive dictionary words which she hurled at Emily would have staggered most of the Blairwater girls. But Emily was too much at home with words to be floored so easily, so she grew angry too, but in the cool, dignified, Murray way which was much more exasperating than violence. When Isla had to pause for breath in her diatribes, Emily, sitting on a big stone with her knees crossed, her eyes black and her cheeks crimson, interjected little sarcastic retorts 
that infuriated Isla still further. Isla was crimson too, and her eyes were pools of scintillating, tawny fire. They were both so graceful in their fury that it was almost a pity they couldn't have been angry all the time. You needn't suppose, you little pulling, sniveling chit, that you are going to boss me just because you live at New Moon, shrieked Isla as an ultimatum stamping her foot. I'm not going to boss you. I'm not going to associate with you ever again, retorted Emily disdainfully. I'm going to be rid of you, you proud, stuck-up, conceited, top-lofty biped, cried Isla. Never you speak to me again, and don't you go about Blairwater saying things about me either. This was unbearable to a girl who never said things about her friends or once friends. I'm not going to say things about you, said Emily deliberately. I'm just going to think them. This was far more aggravating than speech, and Emily knew it. Isla was driven quite frantic by it. Who knew what unearthly things Emily might be thinking about her any time she took the notion to? Isla had already discovered what a fertile invention Emily had. Do you suppose I care what you think, you insignificant serpent? Why, you haven't any sense. I've got something then that's far better, said Emily with a maddening, superior smile. Something that you can never have, Isla Burnley. Isla doubled her fists, as if she would like to demolish Emily by physical force. If I couldn't write better poetry than you, I'd hang myself, she decided. I'll lend you a dime to buy a rope, said Emily. Isla glared at her, vanquished. You go to the devil, she said. Emily got up and went, not to the devil, but back to New Moon. Isla relieved her feelings by knocking the boards of their china closet down and kicking their moss gardens to pieces and departed also. Emily felt exceedingly badly. Here was another friendship destroyed, a friendship, too, that had been very delightful and satisfying. Isla had been a splendid chum, there was no doubt about that. After Emily had called down, she went to the dormer window and cried. Wretched, wretched me, she sobbed dramatically but very sincerely. Yet the bitterness of her break with Rhoda was not present. This quarrel was fair and open and above board. She had not been stabbed in the back. But of course, she and Isla would never be chums again. You couldn't be chums with a person who called you a chit and a biped and a serpent and told you to go to the devil. The thing was impossible, 
and besides, Isla could never forgive her. For Emily was honest enough to admit to herself that she had been very aggravating too. Yet, when Emily went to the playhouse next morning, bent on retrieving her share of broken dishes and boards, there was Isla, skipping around, hard at work, with all the shelves back in place, the moss garden remade, and a beautiful parlour laid out and connected with the living room by a spruce arch. Hello you, here's your parlour and I hope you'll be satisfied now, she said gaily. What's kept you so long? I thought you were never coming. This rather posed Emily after her tragic night, wherein she had buried her second friendship and wept over its grave. She was not prepared for so speedy a resurrection. As far as Isla was concerned, it seemed as if no quarrel had ever taken place. Why, that was yesterday, she said in amazement, when Emily, rather distantly, referred to it. Yesterday and today were two entirely different things in Isla's philosophy. Emily accepted it. She found she had to. Isla, it transpired, could no more help flying into tantrums now and then than she could help being jolly and affectionate between them. What amazed Emily, in whom things were bound to rankle for a time, was the way in which Isla appeared to forget a quarrel the moment it was over. To be called a serpent and a crocodile one minute, and hugged and darlinged the next, was somewhat disconcerting until time and experience took the edge off it. Aren't I nice enough between times to make up for it? demanded Isla. Dot Payne never flies into tempers, but would you like her for a chum? No, she's too stupid, admitted Emily. And Rhoda Stewart is never out of temper, but you got enough of her. Do you think I'd ever treat you as she did? No. Emily had no doubt on this point. Whatever Isla was or was not, she was loyal and true. And certainly Rhoda Stewart and Dot Payne compared to Isla were as moonlight unto sunlight and as water unto wine, or would have been if Emily had as yet known anything more of her Tennyson than the bugle song. You can't have everything, said Isla. I've got Dad's temper, and that's all there is to it. Wait till you see him in one of his rages. Emily had not seen this so far. She had often been down in the Burnley's house, but on the few occasions when Dr. Burnley had been there, he had ignored her, save for a curt nod. He was a busy man, for whatever his shortcomings were, his skill was unquestioned, and the bounds of his practice extended far. By the sickbed, he was as gentle and sympathetic as he was brusque and sarcastic away from it. As long as you were ill, there was nothing Dr. Burnley would not do for you. Once you were well, 
he had apparently no further use for you. He had been absorbed all through July trying to save Teddy Kent's life up at the Tansy Patch. Teddy was out of danger now and able to be up, but his improvement was not speedy enough to satisfy Dr. Burnley. One day, he held up Emily and Isla, who were heading through the lawn to the pond with fishing hooks and a can of fat, abominable worms, the latter manipulated solely by Isla, and ordered them to betake themselves up to the tansy patch and play with Teddy Kent. He's lonesome and moping. Go and cheer him up, said the doctor. Isla was rather loath to go. She liked Teddy, but it seemed she did not like his mother. Emily was secretly not averse. She had seen Teddy Kent but once, at Sunday school, the day before he was taken seriously ill, and she had liked his looks. It had seemed that he liked hers too, for she caught him staring shyly at her over the intervening pews several times. He was very handsome, Emily decided. She liked his thick, dark brown hair and his black-browed blue eyes, and for the first time, it occurred to her that it might be rather nice to have a boy playmate too. Not a bew, of course. Emily hated the school jargon that called a boy your bew if he happened to give you a pencil or an apple and picked you out frequently for his partner in the games. Teddy's nice, but his mother is weird, Isla told her on the way to the Tansy Patch. She never goes out anywhere, not even to church, but I guess it's because of the scar on her face. They're not Blairwater people. They've only been living at the Tansy Patch since last fall. They're poor and proud, and not many people visit them. But Teddy is awfully nice, so if his mother gives us some black looks, we needn't mind. Mrs. Kent gave them no black looks, though her reception was rather distant. Perhaps she, too, had received some orders from the doctor. She was a tiny creature, with enormous masses of dull, soft, silky fawn hair, dark, mournful eyes, and a broad scar running slantwise across her pale face. Without the scar, she must have been pretty, and she had a voice as soft and uncertain as the wind in the tansy. Emily, with her instinctive faculty of sizing up people she met, felt that Mrs. Kent was not a happy woman. The tansy patch was east of the disappointed house, between the Blairwater and the sand dunes. Most people considered it a bare, lonely, neglected place, but Emily thought it was fascinating. The little clapboarded house topped a small hill over which Tansy grew in a hard, flaunting, aromatic luxuriance, rising steeply and abruptly from a main road. A struggling rail fence, almost smothered in wild rose bushes, bounded the domain, and a sagging, ill-used little gate gave ingress from the road. 
stones were let into the side of the hill for steps up to the front door. Beside the house was a tumble-down little barn and a field of flowering buckwheat, creamy green, sloping down to the Blair water. In front was a crazy veranda around which a brilliant band of red poppies held up their enchanted cups. Teddy was unfeignedly glad to see them, and they had a happy afternoon together. There was some colour in Teddy's clear olive skin when it ended, and his dark blue eyes were brighter. Mrs. Kent took in these signs greedily and asked the girls to come back with an eagerness that was yet not cordiality. But they had found that the Tansy Patch was a charming place and were glad to go again. For the rest of the vacation, there was hardly a day when they did not go up to it, preferably in the long, smoky, delicious August evenings when the white moths sailed over the tamey plantation and the golden twilight faded into dusk and purple over the green slopes beyond and fireflies lighted their goblin torches by the pond. Sometimes they played games in the Tansy Patch, when Teddy and Emily somehow generally found themselves on the same side, and then no more than a match for agile, quick-witted Isla. Sometimes Teddy took them to the barn loft and showed them his little collection of drawings. Both girls thought them very wonderful, without knowing in the least how wonderful they really were. It seemed like magic to see Teddy take a pencil and a bit of paper, and with a few quick strokes of his slim, brown fingers, bring out a sketch of Isla or Emily, or Smoke or Buttercup, that looked ready to speak, or meow. Smoke and Buttercup were the Tansy Patch cats. Buttercup was a chubby, yellow, delightful creature, hardly out of kittenhood. Smoke was a big Maltese and an aristocrat from the tip of his nose to the tip of his tail. There was no doubt whatever that he belonged to the cat caste of Fur de Ver. He had emerald eyes and a coat of plush. The only white thing about him was an adorable dicky. Emily thought of all the pleasant hours spent at the Tansy Patch. The pleasantest were those when, tired with play, they all three sat on the crazy veranda steps in the mystery and enchantment of the borderland between light and dark when the little clump of spruce behind the barn looked like beautiful, dark phantom trees. The clouds of the west faded into grey and a great round yellow moon rose over the fields to be reflected brokenly in the pond when the wind woman was making wonderful woven lights and shadows. Mrs. Kent never joined them, though Emily had a creepy conviction that she was watching them stealthily from behind the kitchen blind. Teddy and Isla sang school ditties, and Isla recited, and Emily told stories, or they sat in happy silence, each anchored in some secret port of dreams, while the cats chased each other madly over the hill, 
and through the tansy, tearing round and round the house like possessed creatures. They would spring up at the children with sudden pounces and spring as suddenly away. Their eyes gleamed like jewels, their tails swayed like plumes. They were palpitating with nervous, stealthy life. Oh, isn't it good to be alive, like this, Emily said once. Wouldn't it be dreadful if one had never lived? Still, existence was not wholly unclouded. Aunt Elizabeth took care of that. Aunt Elizabeth only permitted the visits to the Tansy Patch under protest and because Dr. Burnley had ordered them. Aunt Elizabeth does not approve of Teddy, Emily wrote in one of her letters to her father, which were steadily multiplying on the old garret sofa shelf. The first time I asked her if I might go and play with Teddy, she looked at me severely and said, Who is this Teddy person? We do not know anything about these Kents. Remember, Emily, the Murrays do not associate with everyone. I said I'm a star. I'm not a Murray. You said so yourself. Dear father, I did not mean to be impertinent, but Aunt Elizabeth said I was, who would not speak to me the rest of the day. She seemed to think that was a very bad punishment, but I did not mind it much, only it is rather unpleasant to have your own family preserve a disdainful silence towards you. But since then, She's let me go to the Tansy Patch because Dr. Burnley came and told her to. Dr. Burnley has a strange influence over Aunt Elizabeth. I do not understand it. Rhoda said once that Aunt Elizabeth hoped Dr. Burnley and Aunt Laura would make a match of it, which, you know, means get married. But that is not so. Mrs. Thomas Anderson was here one afternoon to tea. Mrs. Thomas Anderson is a big fat woman, and her grandmother was a Murray, and there is nothing else to say about her. She asked Aunt Elizabeth if she thought Dr. Burnley would marry again, and Aunt Elizabeth said no, he would not, and she did not think it right for people to marry a second time. Mrs. Anderson said sometimes I've thought he would take Laura. Aunt Elizabeth just swept her a haughty glance. There is no use in denying it. There are times when I am very proud of Aunt Elizabeth, even if I do not like her. Teddy is a very nice boy, father. I think you would approve of him. Should there be two peas in approve? He can make splendid pictures, and he is going to be a famous artist someday, and then he's going to paint my portrait. He keeps his pictures in the barn loft because his mother doesn't like to see them. He can whistle just like a bird. The Tansy Patch is a very quaint place, especially at night. I love the twilight there. We always have such fun in the twilight. The wind woman makes herself small in the Tansy, just like a tiny, tiny fairy, and the cats are so weird and creepy and delightful then. They belong to Mrs. Kent, and Teddy is afraid to pet them much for fear she will drown them. She drowned a kitten once because she thought he liked it better than her, but he didn't 
because Teddy is very much attached to his mother. He washes the dishes for her and helps her in all the housework. Isla says the boys in school call him sissy for that, but I think it is noble and manly of him. Teddy wishes she would let him have a dog, but she won't. I have thought Aunt Elizabeth was tyrannical, but Mrs. Kent is far worse in some ways. But then, she loves Teddy, and Aunt Elizabeth does not love me. But Mrs. Kent doesn't like Isla or me. She never says so, but we feel it. She never asks us to stay to tea, and we've always been so polite to her. I believe she is jealous of us because Teddy likes us. Teddy gave me the sweetest picture of the Blair water he had painted on a big white cowhawk shell, but he said I mustn't let his mother know about it because she would cry. Mrs. Kent is a very mysterious person, very like some people you read of in books. I like mysterious people, but not too close. Her eyes always look hungry, though she has plenty to eat. She never goes anywhere because she has a scar on her face where she was burned with a lamp exploding. It made my blood run cold, dear father. How thankful I am that Aunt Elizabeth only burns candles. Some of the Murray traditions are very sensible. Mrs. Kent is very religious, what she calls religious. She prays even in the middle of the day. Teddy says that before he was born into this world, he lived in another one where there was two suns, one red and one blue. The days were red and the nights blue. I don't know where he got that idea from, but it sounds attractive to me. And he says the brooks run honey instead of water. But what did you do when you were thirsty? I said. Oh, we were never thirsty there. But I think I would like to be thirsty, because then cold water tastes good. I would like to live in the moon. It must be such a nice, silvery place. Isla says Teddy ought to like her best because there is more fun in her than in me, but that is not true. There is just as much fun in me when my conscience doesn't bother me. I guess Isla wants Teddy to like her best, but she's not a jealous girl. I'm glad to say that Aunt Elizabeth and Aunt Laura both approve of my friendship with Isla. It is so seldom they approve of the same thing. I'm getting used to fighting with Isla now and don't mind it much. Besides, I can fight pretty well myself when my blood is up. We fight about once a week, but we make up right away, and Isla says things would be dull if there was never a row. I would like it better without rows, but you can never tell what will make Isla mad. She never gets mad twice over the same thing. She calls me dreadful names. Yesterday, she called me a lousy lizard and a toothless viper, but somehow I didn't mind it much because I knew I wasn't lousy or toothless, and she knew it too. I don't call names, because that is unladylike, but I smile, and that makes Isla far madder than if I scowled and stamped as she does. 
and that is why I do it. Aunt Laura says I must be careful not to pick up the words Isla uses and try to set her a good example because the poor child has no one to look after her properly. I wish I could use some of her words because they are so striking. She gets them from her father. I think my aunts are too particular. One night, when the Reverend Mr. Dare was here to tea, I used the word bull in my conversation. I said Isla and I were afraid to go through Mr. James Lee's pasture where the old well was because he had a cross bull there. After Mr. Dare had gone, Aunt Elizabeth gave me an awful scolding and told me I was never to use that word again. But she had been talking of tigers at tea, in conversation with missionaries, and I can't understand why it is more disgraceful to talk about bulls than tigers. Of course bulls are ferocious animals, but so are tigers. But Aunt Elizabeth says I am always disgracing them when they have company. When Mrs. Lockwood was here from Shrewsbury last week, they were talking about Mrs. Foster Beck, who is a bride, and I said Dr. Burnley thought she was devilishly pretty. Aunt Elizabeth said, Emily, in an awful tone. She was pale with rage. Dr. Burnley said it, I cried. I'm only quoting. And Dr. Burnley did say it the day I stayed to dinner with Isla, and Dr. Jameson was there from Shrewsbury. I saw Dr. Burnley in one of his rages that afternoon over something Mrs. Sims had done in his office. It was a gruesome sight his big yellow eyes blazing, and he tore about and kicked over a chair and threw a mat at the wall and fired a vase out of the window and said terrible things. I sat on the sofa and stared at him like one fascinated. It was so interesting, I was sorry when he cooled down, which he soon did, because he is like Isla and never stays mad long. He never gets mad at Isla, though. Isla says she wishes he would. It would be better than being taken no notice of. She is as much of an orphan as I am, poor child. Last Sunday, she went to church with her old faded blue dress on. There was a tear right in the front of it. Aunt Laura wept when she came home and then spoke to Mrs. Sims about it because she did not dare to speak to Dr. Burnley. Mrs. Sims was cross and said it was not her place to look after Isla's clothes, but she said she had got Dr. Burnley to get Isla a nice sprigged muslin dress and Isla had got egg stain on it. And when Mrs. Sims scolded her for being so careless, Isla flew into a rage and went upstairs and tore the muslin dress to pieces and Mrs. Sims said she wasn't going to bother her head again about a child like that, and there was nothing for her to wear but her old blue, but Mrs. Sims didn't know it was tore. So I sneaked Tyler's dress over to New Moon, and Aunt Laura mended it neatly and hid the tear with a pocket. Isla said she tore up her muslin dress one of the days she didn't believe in God and didn't care what she did. 
Isla found a mouse in her bed one night, and she just took it out and jumped it. Oh, how brave. I could never be as brave as that. It is not true that Dr. Burnley never smiles. I have seen him do it, but not often. He just smiles with his lips, but not his eyes, and it makes me feel uncomfortable. Mostly he laughs in a horrid, sarcastic way, like Jolly Jim's uncle. We had barley soup for dinner that day, very watery. Aunt Laura is giving me five cents a week for washing the dishes. I can only spend one cent of it, and the other four have to be put into the toad bank in the sitting room on the mantel. The toad is made of brass and sits on top of the bank, and you put the scents in his mouth one at a time. He swallows them, and they drop into the bank. It's very fascinating. I should not write fascinating again, because you told me I must not use the same word too often, but I can't think of any other word that describes my feelings so well. The toad bank is Aunt Laura's, but she said I could use it. I just hugged her. Of course, I never hug Aunt Elizabeth. She's too rigid and bony. She does not approve of Aunt Laura paying me for washing dishes. I tremble to think what she should say if she knew Cousin Jimmy gave me a whole dollar on the sly last week. I wish he had not given me so much. It worries me. It is an awful responsibility. It will be so difficult to spend it wisely also without Aunt Elizabeth finding out about it. I hope I shall never have a million dollars. I'm sure it would crush me utterly. I keep my dollar hid on the shelf with my letters and put it in an old envelope and wrote on it, Cousin Jimmy Murray gave me this, so that if I died suddenly and Aunt Elizabeth found it, she would know I came by it honestly. Now that the days are getting cool, Aunt Elizabeth makes me wear my thick flannel petticoat. I hate it. It makes me so bunchy. But Aunt Elizabeth says I must wear it because you die of consumption. I wish clothes could be both graceful and healthy. I read the story of Red Riding Hood today. I think the wolf was the most interesting character in it. Red Riding Hood was a stupid little thing, so easily fooled. I wrote two poems yesterday. One was short and entitled, Lines Addressed to a Blue-Eyed Grass Flower Gathered in the Old Orchard. Here it is. Sweet little flower, thy modest face is ever lifted towards the sky, and reflection of its face is caught within thine own blue eye. The meadow queens are tall and fair, the columbines are lovely too, but the poor talent I possess shall laurel thee my flowers of blue. The other poem was long, and I wrote it on a letter bill. It is called The Monarch of the Forest. The monarch is the big birch in Lofty John's bush. I love that bush so much it hurts 
Do you understand that kind of hurting? Isla likes it too, and we play there most of the time when we are not at the Tansy Patch. We have three paths in it. We call them the Today Road, the Yesterday Road, and the Tomorrow Road. The Today Road is by the brook, and we call it that because it is lovely now. The Yesterday Road is out in the stumps where Lofty John cut some trees down, and we call it that because it used to be lovely. The Tomorrow Road is just a tiny patch in the maple clearing, and we call it that because it is going to be lovely someday, when the maples grow bigger. But oh father dear, I haven't forgotten the dear old trees down home. I always think of them after I go to bed. But I am happy here. It isn't wrong to be happy, is it father? Aunt Elizabeth says I got over being homesick very quick, but I am often homesick inside. I've got acquainted with Lofty John. Isla is a great friend of his and often goes there to watch him work in his carpenter shop. He says he's made enough ladders to get to heaven without the priest, but that is just his joke. He is really a very devout Catholic and goes to the chapel at White Cross every Sunday. I go with Isla though perhaps I ought not to when he is an enemy of the family. He is of stately bearing and refined manners, very civil to me, but I don't always like him. When I ask him a serious question, he always winks over my head when he answers. That is insulting. Of course, I never ask any questions on religious subjects, but Isla does. She likes him, but she says he would burn us all at the stake if he had the power. She asked him right out if he wouldn't, and he winked at me and said, Oh, we wouldn't burn nice pretty little Protestants like you. We would only burn the ugly old ones. That was a frivolous reply. Mrs. Lofty John is a nice woman and not at all proud. She looks like a little rosy, wrinkled apple. On rainy days, we play at Tyler's. We can slide down the banisters and do what we like. Nobody cares, only when the doctor is home and we have to be quiet because he can't bear any noise in the house except what he makes himself. The roof is flat and we can get out on it through a door in the garret ceiling. It is very exciting to be up on the roof of a house. We had a yelling contest there the other night to see which could yell the loudest. To my surprise, I found I could. You never can tell what you can do till you try. But too many people heard us and Aunt Elizabeth was very angry. She asked me what made me do such a thing. That is an awkward question because often I can't tell what makes me do things. Sometimes I do them just to find out what it feels like doing them, and sometimes I do them because I want to have some exciting thing to tell my grandchildren. It is improper to talk about having grandchildren. I have discovered that it is improper to talk about having children. 
One evening, when people were here, Aunt Laura said to me quite kindly, What are you thinking so earnestly about, Emily? And I said, I'm picking names for my children. I mean to have ten. And after the company had gone, Aunt Elizabeth said to Aunt Laura, icily, I think it will be better in the future, Laura, if you do not ask that child what she's thinking of. If Aunt Laura doesn't, I shall be sorry, because when I have an interesting thought, I like to tell it. School begins again next week. Isla is going to ask Miss Brownell if I can sit with her. I intend to act as if Rhoda was not there at all. Teddy is going too. Dr. Burnley says he is well enough to go, though his mother doesn't like the idea. Teddy says she never likes to have him go to school, but she is glad that he hates Miss Brownell. Aunt Laura says that the right way to end a letter to a dear friend is yours affectionately, so I am yours very affectionately. Emily Bird Star P.S. Because you are my very dearest friend still, father. Isla says she loves me best of anything in the world, and her red leather boots that Mrs. Sim gave her next. <laughs>